from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the CER's podcast. On the 5th and 6th of October, European leaders met in Granada, first for the third meeting of the European political community, and then for an EU-only informal meeting that was meant to discuss enlargement, EU reform and reform of the EU's migration rules. To discuss all of this, I have the head of our Brussels office, Camino Mortero Martinez, and senior research fellow Luigi Scazzieri with me. Welcome back to the podcast, both of you. So let's first start with the EPC summit itself. Luigi, what was the outcome of the summit? There's been a lot of commentary in the press about how it was a disappointment. Do you think that's fair? Hi, Octavian. Thanks for that question. I think you're right. I mean, the summit was widely considered to be a bit of a disappointment. It was the third summit in the format, and it was really supposed to consolidate the EPC, at least according to what the Spanish organizers said they intended to do. And there are three reasons, really, or at least three, at least why it was seen as a disappointment. First of all, it was hoped that it could advance the resolution of the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and that between Kosovo and Serbia. And actually, neither of these things happened. Kosovo's president refused to meet Serbia's president, actually calling for European leaders to sanction him instead. And Azerbaijan's president cancelled his participation in the summit at quite late, uh, with Azeri officials saying that this was because of the anti-Azerbaijan atmosphere of the EPC. Second reason why it's been considered a disappointment is that other leaders didn't attend So aside from the Azerbaijani president, the other notable absence was that of Turkey's president Erdogan, who again cancelled at quite late notice. Official reason is because of a cold. It is the second summit that Erdogan misses in a row. So this does suggest that he sees little value in the format. And at the same time, you know, I mentioned Kosovo. It's notable that Kosovo was represented by its president, which is a ceremonial position rather than by its prime minister. And at the same time, a third reason why perhaps the optics of the summit didn't look great is that there was a, a bit of a spat between the UK and Spain, with the UK being very keen to discuss migration, but the Spanish organizers not really willing to include it in the agenda. And in part because of this, the final press conference was cancelled. So that made it seem like it was a disappointment and a bit of a mess, really. Having said all that, I think it's too early to write the EPC off. First, just because it couldn't make a contribution to resolving the conflicts in Serbia and Kosovo in this instance, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has no potential to do so in the future. I would note that both conflicts had recently escalated. So with Azerbaijan taking over the Armenian populated breakaway region of Nagorno-Karabakh just very shortly before the summit and with some events in northern Kosovo, armed attack by some pro-Serbian forces in the north that had actually also reignited that conflict. The second reason is that I think the APC summit still does provide value in the sense that it provides an opportunity for European leaders to signal their support for countries that are APC members, but not EU members. And in that sense, it provides a forum that is neutral, 
and in which each member is on an equal footing. And that is, of course, very different from the meetings that candidate countries attend with the UN enlargement format, because there, on the other hand, they don't really have ownership of the agenda and they don't participate on an equal footing. And the EU-UK angle, I think, is also fairly relevant in the sense that you know, despite the disagreement between the UK and Spain on whether to include migration, the UK and a group of countries actually did hold a side meeting on migration. So it was the UK, Italy, the Netherlands, Albania, France and the European Commission. And in a sense, that showcases some of the potential of the EPC to, I think, address some of these issues in a format that requires less preparation and that perhaps is less politically costly for leaders to attend than other formats. And that also, you know, goes to the point that EPC meetings make it very easy for leaders to arrange a very large number of bilateral meetings and to meet in a format that's quite low stakes. There's no need to visit another country. There's no need to schedule a full meeting. You can just meet or bump into someone else fairly casually at the summit. And that is especially valuable, I think, from leaders from some of the smaller countries who might not necessarily meet other leaders very often. You know, looking to the future, given that the value of the EPC is essentially as a networking high-level format. It really depends on A, whether a critical mass of leaders continues to attend, and B, what future presidencies make of it. So the UK is one of the biggest advocates of the EPC, and it has, I think, every incentive to make the summit that is due to hold the next summit, which is it's due to hold near, somewhere near London early next year. After that, you know, the host is supposed to be Hungary. And there again, on the other hand, there could be some issues if the Hungarians try to, you know, put some very contentious issues on the agenda and maybe don't put too much effort into making it a success. Final point is that the EPC is a forum. It's not an institution. There's no consensus around giving it a budget. It has no secretariat. So its ability to actually implement any projects is very limited. But I do think that there is some appetite perhaps to envisage a sort of light institutionalization of the EPC. And one idea that is gaining traction is that of a system of presidencies, perhaps similar to what the EU has, with the outgoing presidency, the current presidency, and the future presidency helping each other organize summits, basically, and providing a degree of continuity between one meeting and the next, or also more kind of track 1.5 meetings in between summits of experts and, and officials. So that might be an idea that puts the EPC on a slightly more solid footing without leading to the kind of formalisation that so many countries don't want. Thanks, Luigi. If we look at the meeting between the EU leaders, Camino, what was the outcome of the discussion on enlargement? Was there any agreement on when Ukraine can start negotiations? Hi, Octavian. Thanks so much for having me back. I think Spanish officials would be a bit disappointed to hear that they're very much prepared for another summit and EPC was a bit of a disappointment. I think in the case of the summit itself, it actually worked as it was supposed to be working. So the whole idea for the Granada Declaration and the Granada Summit in the first place is, as you might know, if you follow us, which you surely do, Spain is holding the rotating presidency of the Council of Ministers, and it is doing it at a very, very important time for the European Union when a massive debate is going on, not on whether or not we should enlarge, because I think it is rather clear for everybody that enlargement will happen, but rather on how it should happen, and what is that the European Union needs to do to be prepared for it. The idea of the Granada Summit then was to lay down the foundations upon which the European Union will try and work out what a European Union adds perhaps 
36 members might look like. And in that respect, I think the summit itself was very successful. So let me say this for my compatriots in Spain, in that it produced a very, very solid, very clear, and in my view, very important document that says in black and white, we are ready to do this. We think large in the European Union is a geopolitical requirements that is going to be a win-win for everybody, but we will not do this at the expense of some very important European Union principles. And one of them is obviously the rule of law. So to me, despite saying this perhaps simple thing, but convincing some member states that this was a thing that needed to be said, the Granada summit itself was a success. Now, there was no decision on when we should start negotiations with Ukraine because the decision is actually pending a technical assessment that the European Commission is doing at the very moment and it will be taken in December at the traditional end of the year meeting of EU leaders which I'm sure is going to be another of these very funny occasions when we are supposed to be announcing something and then there is a lot of wrangling over something else possibly migration which is the topic du jour, as we will talk later about. So why is migration back on the top of the agenda? That's a very good question. And that's a question that I actually ask myself all the time. Obviously, we're seeing arrivals going up. So that's an important reason why migration is back on the agenda. Now, we are not anywhere near the levels that we have been in the past. And to be honest, I think all member states and European Union institutions were prepared for this to happen because we had a bit of a lull on migration arrivals after the pandemic for all these reasons. And now this phenomenon, which by the way, is just something that has always happened and will continue to happen, is just taking up again. I think it has a lot to do with politics as well, right? So we've seen once again this idea that we have the member states on the front line, so Italy, Spain, Greece, Malta, etc., trying to deal with a search on arrivals from parts of the world which are unstable. And at the moment, it seems that that list uh, might actually be <laughs> expanding quite a lot. And then you have, on the other hand, those countries like Germany and Sweden and others, Belgium as well, where I'm already sit, which have a lot of problems in trying to accommodate those seeking asylum or those seeking to basically establish themselves in their countries. So because of that, we've been seeing a lot of headlines in the media on horrible tragedies that have happened in Lampedusa and Greece in particular. There is, by the way, a massive problem going on in the Spanish Canary Islands, island of El Hierro, which is a small island, also seeing an incredible surge of arrivals at the moment. Difficult for them to cope with it as well, so I expect Spain is also going to be one of these countries where headlines are going to happen about migration quite soon. And then the newspapers and the journalists in other places like Belgium and Sweden are actually saying, okay, what's going on with us? We cannot host all these people, regardless of whether or not you agree with that. Even Kissinger was saying this the other day, right? So by mere force of just being on the media and because some of the problems that we had are back, obviously there has become a massive political problem. And when it infiltrates your political campaigns, then is when you know this is going to become, once again, one of the European Union's top issues. We are having this really interesting dynamic by which migration is a very important political topic in countries I mentioned before, but also in Poland, which holds elections on Sunday 15th. 
But at the same time, the European Union is telling everybody they have everything under control, that they have agreed on an amazing migration pact that is going to solve all our problems and that, you know, the European Union is completely able to protect the borders and nothing like the migration crisis of 2015, 2016 is going to happen again. So you have this really paradoxical situation, right, in which everybody's worried about migration, but the European Union is extremely positive about the way that it's being able to handle migration. I personally don't think the migration pact as it stands will solve some of the problems that it's trying to solve, but probably that's a topic for another podcast. The one thing that I think is quite easy to predict is that migration is going to be back as a bargaining tip in many of the decisions that will have to be taken from now until February, March which is more or less when things have to be decided so that we are on time to close all the legislation before the elections happen in June, the European elections. And I think the Granada summit, and going back to that, this way we go back full circle, is a very good example of that because one of the things that the Granada declaration was supposed to be mentioning was the commitment of the European Union for sustainable and reasonable and manageable migration policy. And this could not happen because... Warsaw and Budapest oppose including migration in the declaration, which is supposed to be a roadmap for the future of Europe. Luigi, did you want to add anything? Maybe just on the enlargement question. So we'll see by the end of the year whether leaders agreed to open talks, mainly with Ukraine. And I think there's a very, very good chance of that. And then, you know, there's a lot of debate on the difficulties thrown up, both externally by the reforms needed in the candidate countries and their challenges in terms of the rule of law criteria that they have to meet, and internally about how the EU comes to grips with all the different questions about how it can function with more members and how its budget can work and whether you need more qualified majority voting or not. But one point which often strikes me is that leaders talk increasingly about the urgency of the process of enlargement and about how it's a geopolitical necessity and often bring up this concept of grey zones and how, you know, the fact that Ukraine was in a grey zone between Europe or rather even the West and Russia is partly what put it in its current situation and what made it such a tempting target for Putin. And this is a point that I think in terms of how the enlargement process works can then play out in different ways, because while EU leaders say that it is very urgent, and at the same time, it's quite clear that they are unwilling to admit Ukraine so long as the conflict is, let's say, hot. At the same time, if the conflict were to be frozen or indeed resolved, then much of the urgency for admitting Ukraine might all of a sudden become a, a lot less intense. And in particular, and I think this is a scenario that is very much worth considering in mind, I think it's possible that Ukraine might join NATO relatively soon, even with a frozen conflict, without a formal peace agreement. And I think that a lot of leaders within the EU might then conclude that that solved the issue of grey zones, that Ukraine is de facto in the West, and that yes, it might get closer to the EU, but there's no need to actually crack open 
that whole box of problems about reforming the EU. And that's a situation that they might be quite happy to, to live with. So we'll see how it plays out. But I mean, it's all years away. I think the near term leaders are going to be very, very keen to give Ukraine a strong signal of support, as indeed they should, because final thought, I think even the more skeptical ones about enlargement have concluded that whatever the ultimate destination proves to be, the process is the best way that they have within the EU policy toolkit of stabilizing and helping Ukraine. I agree with Louis, and I think what Luigi says is very interesting on this idea that we keep on talking about the geopolitical necessity that is so urgent. We cannot come to grips with the idea of having a country actively at war in the European Union. Once that war to disappear, then what is the necessity and what's the urgency, right? What strikes me a lot when talking to governments and to people in general from different member states is that we seem to be approaching this enlargement process as we approach the weather, as in like this is something that is happening to us and we need to find an umbrella to be prepared in case it rains or like we hats but we have no control over it and i think there is a bunch of people trying to on the one hand sort of like find ways that puts everybody from the both sides so candidate countries and the european union back in control of the process regardless of the geopolitical necessity or whatever and an overlapping bunch of people both in and out of government trying to come out with ways that you know if we were to control this process what is that we're going to do about it and i think what is really interesting about this particular situation in which we are now is that it's a moment of convergence in between the idea that the european union needs to be a little bit more strategic in the way it behaves in the world because the world is becoming nastier if it was ever nice. <laughs> but also that they can use this process to actually reform the European Union in parts of it that don't work for its own members. And that's what the whole reform kicks in. And that's what I think makes this so interesting because you cannot possibly go ahead thinking you have a project that was created in the 50s with an idea that has gone through tremendous changes, especially in the past four years, and that you are not going to have to tweak any rules of the game in order to make it fit for what's coming uh, in terms of a large term, but also in terms of China, US, you know, all the tensions in the world that we're seeing. And my particular view is that, and my particular view is that we are at a very early moment of the process. So there is a lot to be processed by the people making the thinking before they can reach conclusions that I think are going to be necessary to be made. Like, for example, this is going to become a very tricky situation unless we seriously consider changing the treaties, uh, which is not something that anybody wants to do at the moment because it's politically very complicated. And if we don't do that, then we will need to be really creative. And for that, the EPC is incredibly useful. And it's very funny, I think, and I, I conclude with this because, you know, I don't want to make this podcast longer than it should be. But it's very funny to me and very paradoxical as well, in a way, that the EPC that by all accounts started as a French idea when the French realized we need to do something about enlargement, what is that we can do? We need to send a message then morphed into something different and the French lost control of it and then it became something bigger and something that was not necessarily related to enlargement is somehow making its way to be related to enlargement again as an outer circle where you can actually integrate some of the countries that want to get into the European Union but do not 
tick the boxes that need to be ticked. And also, you know, while they wait in a way for the European Union to sort of like get its house in order. And one of the ideas that the famous Franco-German report on enlargement reform has put forward. And I frankly think, especially talking to some member states, that I think the dichotomy that we are going to face in coming months and years is that if we don't do this through an overhaul of the rules, we need to think about this whole idea of a phase succession. So something that, you know, you, you get these benefits, but you cannot have voting rights or whatever. And the idea of consensus circles, so like different circles of member states and, and non-member states being there. So I think this is a process to watch, and I'm sure that we are going to be talking about it in future podcasts. And also just keep an eye as well on migration, because I think migration is going to be one of these topics that will need to be discussed as part of the reform of the European Union project in itself. Great. Thank you, Luigi. Thank you, Camino, for joining me today. And thanks to our listeners at home. Don't forget to give us a like and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And see you next time. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.